Welcome to the Brain People Podcast, a show where four mental health experts team up to bring you practical tools for overcoming mental health challenges. The Brain People don't replace your doctor or therapist, but we will give you some extra tools to help you on your journey. So join us as we fight mental illness, one episode at a time. Welcome everyone to another episode on the Brain People Podcast. Today, we are covering a topic that is not that important, huh, Jonathan? No, not at all. <laughs> we are gonna be talking about anxiety. My name is Dr. Katie Elson. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and joining me is... Jonathan Edens, I'm a psychiatric PA. So let's just start with the basic. What is anxiety? Uh, so the way that I usually describe it to people, because really everybody uh, has somewhat of a their own subjective sense as to what anxiety feels like to them, right? Mm -hmm. And so some people will come in and they'll really only talk about kind of the cognitive aspects of anxiety. Some people come in and they, they talk about the emotional or only the physical aspects. And so that's that tends to be how I break it down. Mm -hmm. So to try to help people understand that there can be many different facets and uh, how you experience anxiety and just because you experience anxiety in one situation one way doesn't mean that you're not going to experience it very differently in other situations. So when it comes to you know some of the cognitive uh, the the cognitive characteristics of anxiety, I tend to think of things like worry, ruminations, uh, racing thoughts, and distractibility. Now, just because you have some of those things doesn't mean that you have anxiety necessarily. So it it, it is uh, there is more to it than that. But and maybe um, we should just pause for a second because people might already start getting anxious. Yeah, <laughs> when you mention these things, so I'm glad that you mentioned just because you identify some of these doesn't mean we'll talk in a little bit what exactly constitutes a disorder. Right. Uh, when it comes to like feeling or emo uh, feelings of anxiety or emotional uh, experiences of anxiety, I tend to think of things like restlessness, nervousness, irritability, tension, uh, like physical tension, feelings of impending doom or fatigue. Uh, and then from physical, uh, when it comes to physical symptoms of anxiety, I think this is this is where most people recognize like, hey, this is anxiety, right? It tends to be more serious, more severe, uh, and um, and it's just more more obvious, right? So things like rapid heart rate, shakiness, sweating, difficulty breathing, choking sensation, uh, you know, feeling faint, uh, you know, even nausea. The, these sorts of these sorts of things can be a part of the anxiety picture. So we see that there are multiple facets, right? The cognitive, the emotional, as well as the physical. And really, we could experience these in different situations um, and a combination of these different ones. Yeah. And the uh, the sort of the distinct combination that you tend to experience uh, will help us actually diagnose you with the the specific disorder that you may be experiencing. And tailor the treatments. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, so... You know, when we say anxiety, a lot of people, especially that have dealt with anxiety for a long period of time, they tend to, uh, as you said, sometimes get anxious about just hearing about anxiety because they have such a negative and strong, a strong negative connotation associated with that word and what that and what that brings about in their life. So can we talk a little bit about uh, whether or not anxiety is always a problem? What is your when I when I pose that question, what, what would you say? Oh, definitely not. Right. And I know that I. I'm biased as a clinician of knowing this, I would say most people would respond of like, of course, like I hate my anxiety when it comes on, like it's really strong and I feel like I'm going to die. 
but it's not always a problem. Um, anxiety is actually our friend, right? It actually tells us, it communicates to us that something's going on. There's some sort of perceived danger. Um, but I love the example about the smoke detector. I use that a lot also with my clients who have PTSD. But we think, okay, if the smoke detector is there to help alarm us to potential fire, um, do we want to get rid of the smoke detector? No, right? That's anxiety. It's alarming us to some sort of danger. But then you might say, but then I'm anxious about things all the time. Mm -hmm. It's like that smoke detector that's always firing. It's like beeping, beeping, beeping. Well, what do you do with a smoke detector when it's beeping constantly? Do you get uh, rid of it? You replace it. <laughs> Maybe you dial it down, right? Yeah, yeah. You recalibrate it, mm -hmm. right? You want to make sure that it's going to be on and working when it's needed, when there's an actual fire. So for anxiety, it's not that we want to get rid of it. We just want to recalibrate it, uh, teach it to make sure that it it fires up. It We're activated when it's actually, there's actual danger. So, so I hear you when there is actual danger, it makes it's, it's completely appropriate uh, to feel anxious about a situation, but clearly there are individuals where it goes a little too far. And so when are we really crossing that line and calling it sort of, you know, basic anxiety or stress versus actually calling it a, you know, a clinical disorder that needs to re receive some form of treatment. And before I answer that, I just want to add to that by saying, you know, we have a system built in our body right? The sympathetic nervous system to be able to respond when we need to. So some people are, are familiar with it when we talk about the fight or flight or freeze response. So it's natural. And so when we're starting to talk about, well, how do we know when it goes from our natural body system, just reacting to danger to it being a disorder, um, one key component of that is how long it persists, right? Mm -hmm. From acute to chronic. If I see um, something dangerous, if I see uh, a lion, right? It's going to react. You're going to be activated. That system's going to be on. That's great. But if it lingers, the lion's gone and it's still going, that's going to create a lot of dysfunction and impairment on your body. Now, the, the DSM uh, defines chronic or persistent. Uh, generally, it, it defines it as being six months or more, right? Mm -hmm. It's sort of, they just seemingly created that out of thin air, right. To some extent, but it is, it's whether it's, you know, five, five months or, you know, seven months, it doesn't really matter if it's been going on for a while. And it's, as you said, causing that significant impairment in one, one, uh, in individual's life, then it probably is something that should be treated. But there are some other things that we might consider, uh, aside from just the timing, uh, of the duration of the anxiety. So for some people, uh, it might be obvious that the the response is completely dis disproportional to the stressor. And so if if everybody around you is saying, you know, your reactions to things it, like are a little bit extreme, maybe this is something that needs to get checked out. That's that's maybe another good uh, that's maybe another good indication that that uh, what you think is realistic uh, in, in terms of how you're responding to things isn't actually. Yeah. Even though it might feel very true. Right. right. And. Sometimes, you know, uh, I want to make sure that when my clients are getting better from an anxiety disorder, that they learn that, you know, just because I'm stressed doesn't mean it's disproportionate, right? So I, you know, there have been a lot of fires here and I've had a lot mm. of clients really distressed about it. And I tell them that's a completely normal response. You have anxiety, great. Sure. But then at other times, right, the anxiety can be too much, whether duration or as well as intensity compared to the stressor.
Yeah. So another way of putting that is if, if it's so intense and you just feel like you can't control it, you can't manage it. Uh, you know, it's, it's constantly, it, it seems like it's managing your life. Right. And as a result, you know, your, your daily functioning. And so some aspects, and when it comes to daily functioning, we use that, that type of phrase a lot, but we're specifically talking about things like work, uh, your, your family responsibilities, your relationships. You know, if you're, if you're a student and your grades are failing and because of anxiety, because of academic performance, you know, that would be another aspect of sort of daily functioning that could easily be impaired. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you can think about not wanting to go outside because you're so fearful, even if it's going out to get the mail, um, so definitely in very big ways and big areas of our lives, but also the small details that can add up over time. So let's uh, let's talk uh, for a couple minutes just about some of the prevalence of anxiety disorders, because I think it's important, especially for people that are dealing with any sort of mental illness, uh, to recognize that you're not alone. Right? Mm -hmm. There's there's a lot of people and. I think most people, especially given the times that we're in, uh, can have at least the uh, probably experienced it for themselves to some extent. Uh, but it could, le but at least know a lot of people that probably are clearly experiencing anxiety. And so, <clears throat> when we look this. Uh, this was a um, this was a study that was essentially done uh, to collect a bunch of data, and it is a little bit of an older study. But but the the prevalence rates for anxiety have been fairly consistent, you know, over the last. 10 to 20 years. And we'll talk about the more recent uptick. Mm -hmm. uh, but this was, so back from 2003, they estimated that approximately 19% of US adults had had an anxiety disorder or would would have the, um, would meet the criteria for, for diagnosing an anxiety disorder within the past year. And then uh, they did note that it is slightly higher in females on average, about 23 to 24% for females and about 14% for males. And they did also estimate that roughly 30 to 35% of US adults would, would meet criteria for an anxiety disorder, at least at some point in their life, right? Yeah. So that actually tells me a few things. One, you know, about a third of individuals would meet criteria at some point in their life. But then it also tells me that you know, the difference between 19 and 30 to 35 means that it's not always, um, it's not always mm -hmm. completely chronic and can't necessarily like you can go through seasons where you have, um, severe anxiety and qualify for a disorder and then other seasons where you don't. Right. Yeah. And I think that's very liberating probably for some of our listeners, because it may feel like this is something I'm going to have for the rest of my life. Right. Uh, but let's let's talk about the the global prevalence of anxiety as to how it's been recently. Uh, would you like to Would you like to touch on some of those numbers? Yeah. So the overall global prevalence for anxiety disorders um, is estimated to be about seven point three percent normally. But then you're wondering, right? How did the pandemic impact that? And as people could guess that is higher. And I know there's another study that just looked at depressive and anxiety symptoms um, from 2019, January to uh, June of 2020, and it went from 11% to 41%. Mm. So that's a fourfold increase in both depression and anxiety. And so we can definitely see this huge uptick in um, these numbers. Um, now, only 37% of those suffering from a diagnosable anxiety disorder receive treatment. And so we see these large, you know, statistics and numbers of people suffering, and we see lowered numbers of those who are actually getting treatment. So let's uh, let's switch gears and talk a little bit about uh, the different types of anxiety disorders. Uh, I know not 
not everybody is going to be familiar with all these different diagnoses. Some of them you've probably heard of before. Some of them you may be actually diagnosed with, whether you're aware of it or not. But we'll we'll, we'll talk through some of the most um, the most common ones that we see in the DSM. And so the first one is generalized anxiety disorder. Uh, would you like to de- define generalized anxiety disorder for us, Katie? Yeah. So just think about the name for a second, right? Generalized. And so this is kind of a larger category to describe those individuals who struggle with persistent and excessive worry about many different um, situations, many different um, stressors in their life. Um, but again, generalized. So persistent and excessive worry, but generalized to various things, not specific to any particular thing. And then of course, it interferes with daily activities as we talked about. And this is something that's going to um, be consistent in all the diagnoses that it really does have significant impairment. Um, now, this ongoing worrying tension um, may be accompanied by physical symptoms, some of which we've already mentioned, the restlessness, the feeling on edge or easily um, annoyed, uh, difficulty concentrating. That's a huge one. And you can think about if you are putting so much energy into worrying, it's going to be hard to have um, that energy to focus, to concentrate Uh, Muscle tension is a very, very common one as well. Um, Naturally, our body kind of just tenses up when we're feeling that anxiety. And so if it's general, you're going to be having a constant muscle tension as well. Um, And then difficulties, trouble sleeping as well is a common symptom of um, generalized anxiety disorder. And one thing I'll say about uh, generalized anxiety disorder is it people that experience this disorder, there's always something new, right? So mm-hmm. if it, when people come into me and, and they're uh, complaining of a specific situation that's been going on for maybe months, and this is the main complaint that they have, you know, that may be more of like an acute stress reaction, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, even, even if it's been going on for a number of months. However, you know, with people with generalized anxiety disorder, it might be, it's one thing today, it's a different mm-hmm. thing tomorrow, it's a different thing next week, right? Mm-hmm. There, there's Their brain always has something that they can, they can worry about. And so it can be things that are relatively innocuous to everybody else, but, uh, or, you know, put it another way, relatively minor matters to, to most people. Um, but, but for people with, uh, uh, GAD, generalized anxiety disorder, you know, these tend to be, uh, you, you know, uh, really seem really big deals, seem to be mm-hmm. really big deals in their mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next disorder we wanted to briefly talk about is panic disorder, and we will we'll lump in agoraphobia with this. But panic disorder is uh, is essentially characterized by recurrent panic attacks, and so panic attacks are, are basically the heightened state uh, where you have really severe physical symptoms associated with that fight or flight response, that anxiety that anxiety response, and this can include things like chest pain, tachycardia, palpitations, shortness of breath, sweating, dizziness, numbness, um, and then even things such as severe as um, fear of losing control, fear of dying, fear of having a heart attack, and this is the most common anxiety disorder that's going to uh, lead to people ending up in the emergency room mm-hmm. because they feel like there's something seriously wrong with them. And a lot of times, you know, many, many of you listening may have experienced that and you go, they do all these tests, they do an EKG, right? They might do some, they, you know, if there's something else going on, if there's like referred pain, they might do some imaging. Uh, and then they just, at the end, they say, oh, we couldn't find anything. It's probably just your anxiety. You know, maybe here's a medication or you should follow up with your psychiatrist or your PCP, right? And it can be very frustrating because you don't really get any answers. 
right? And so that in of itself can be a trigger for having more of those panic attacks. And then, as I said, we'll, we'll kind of lump in agoraphobia with this. So agoraphobia is essentially a disproportional fear of being in places or situations where escape may be difficult or embarrassing. So uh, some common things, uh, some some common places might be uh, like like public transportation, open spaces, enclosed spaces, or being in a crowd. And pe people that do have agoraphobia, uh, the reason why we're lumping it with panic disorder is because it's very commonly associated with that disorder. So when people are constantly avoiding places, a lot of times it's for fear of having a panic attack in those places. And so um, it, they're the the uh, basically the activities or the situations or the places that they uh, will go tends to get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller to the point where I've had patients that haven't left their specific town, a small town in years or haven't left their home mm -hmm. in months, right? And so it can be very, very limiting. Now, a little side tangent here. Um, how do you think people have been impacted in regarding the agoraphobia and panic disorder when we were forced to stay home? Uh, for a lot of them, it actually became very easy because it was all of a sudden socially acceptable for them to be staying home for months at a time. Um, but a lot of these patients have, have, have it's been even that much harder uh, to get them to face those fears, especially if uh, they had a lot of anxiety about the pandemic. Uh, getting them to open back up and get sort of back to their level of functionality that they had beforehand has been, I think, extremely difficult for this particular population. Yeah. And I've seen individuals who didn't have this before the pandemic, and mm. then it actually, the pandemic led to this. And that's particularly difficult because in some ways it is proportional to the actual fear. There was a fear of a virus. There was fear of contagion. And so um, this one's been particularly difficult with patients now because it's there's something to be afraid of. Um, and then grocery stores, especially, I think, for some of my clients. Yeah. And, and that actually kind of leads uh, very nicely into the next one on specific phobias. And so you know, this one doesn't need much explanation, but essentially some people just are, are very, very afraid of, of, very, of specific situations, activities, or objects such as flying, public speaking, or even things like spiders and snakes. But I'd, I'll throw in there you know, the uh, coronavirus. So I think probably a lot of people could meet criteria for having a phobia of, of, of COVID. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, moving on to the next one, let's talk about uh, social anxiety disorder. Uh, do you want to define that for us? Yeah. So uh, significant anxiety, of course, um, and discomfort about being embarrassed, humiliated, rejected, or looked down on in social interactions. Now, I want to clarify because a lot of people, it's kind of like when people use, oh, I'm bipolar or I'm OCD in a very colloquial sense. Um, when people say, oh, I have social anxiety. There's a difference between social nervousness, right? And I think there's even a, a healthy component of social nervousness versus a disorder. Um, and again, going back to causes significant impairment. But you notice one thing that I mentioned about the criteria is it's not just being anxious in a social situation. It's really heightened concern about being criticized, being um, looked down upon, being evaluated and um, humiliated specifically. Yeah. Uh, 
So the, the last one I think we'll talk about is, and just briefly is separation anxiety disorder. And so separation anxiety disorder, this is uh, most commonly attributed to children, but it, but can, can manifest itself, especially, uh, you know, in, in adults. Um, but it's usually, it, it's usually characterized by somebody that's excessively fearful or anxious about being separated from somebody that they're ex- that they're very attached to, uh, and so this can this as I said this can start in childhood. A lot of times it it resolves before the end of childhood, but can definitely be carried on. You know, I've had some patients where, you know, maybe they had a traumatic experience in which one of their parents almost died. And now they're, you know, in their thirties or forties and they still, uh, the thought of, you know, losing their parents, being away from their parents, um, not being in const- constant, uh, communication with their parents is very anxiety provoking for them. Yeah. And you know, there are a few anxiety disorders we we're not necessarily going to touch on today. Uh, but because uh, the DSM doesn't actually categorize these under the anxiety disorder section. So things like post-traumatic stress disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, the DSM actually categorizes these in different classifications. And we'd like to, you know, we'd like to talk about these more in depth in future episodes. So for the remainder of the podcast, we're going to talk about some specific techniques, some practical applications uh, for how you can deal um, with things such as generalized anxiety, panic disorder, social anxiety, and, and, and so forth. So uh, why don't you, uh, Katie, talk to us a little bit about uh, what are some what are some actual practical things that we can do to to help uh, with our anxiety? Yeah, so it's kind of full circle here. We started with categorizing anxiety into those three main components of the cognitive, emotional, um, as well as the somatic or physical. And so there are things that we can do specifically that target those different areas. And so for the first thing to mention, um, what are the behaviors that we can do? to target some of those symptoms. And so really the, the the best foundation we wanted to talk about is just the foundation of having healthy habits. And we have a couple already put podcasts on those. Jonathan, which are those podcasts? Yeah. So if you're wanting to learn more about nutrition, uh, you can listen to episode two, where we do emphasize, you know, eating a very, uh, Oh, uh, you know, a plant-based diet, specifically one that's whole food based, a variety of, you know, fruits, vegetables, nuts, and seeds. Um, you know, those are going to be excellent for, for your overall mental health and as well, your physical health, um, exercise. Uh, we talk about that. Um, Katie and I talk about that fairly extensively in episode 12. So that would be another good uh, podcast to listen to. And then sleep, sleep is incredibly important, uh, to sort of round out kind of the, um, you know, those, those core components of, of having a healthy lifestyle. And so sleep hygiene is going to be incredibly important for that as well. Yeah. And I mentioned foundation because it's really difficult to do the next steps to, to really have progress if you're not having that foundation. And I know for myself as a clinician, it's hard for me if my, my clients are not having that good, healthy lifestyle. Sure. I mean, it's hard, it's hard for me to function as a clinician. If I'm, if I'm, if I don't have say my sleep on point, if I'm not exercising regularly, uh, you know, it it definitely affects our ability to be as present with our patients. Mm -hmm. You know, it's going to affect our energy levels. And so we're not going to be, we're not going to be as sharp, you know, we're not going to be able to make as good decisions, um, if we're not taking care of ourselves. And so it doesn't just go to a mental health standpoint, Mm -hmm. um, but it's so much, it's so much more comprehensive than that. Uh, but let's, let's talk about some specific, uh, you know, what we, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. We've talked, we've talked about that. Um, you know, you can, if you want 
uh, a little bit more information on that, you can go to episode 11, where Amanda and I uh, talked uh, talked about your thoughts specifically. Um, but we but there are some cognitive tech, uh, excuse me, CBT techniques that we use to uh, to to work on individuals' behaviors. So can we can we walk through a few of those, Katie? Yeah. So starting with behaviors, um, we really want to start with relaxation strategies and techniques. So one of the most basic ones, deep breathing, deep diaphragmatic breathing. Um, Before you go on, what is what is a diaphragm? Because not everybody is familiar with that term. <laughs> yeah. So the diaphragm, if you put your bell, your hand on your belly, kind of right above your belly button, you can find that muscle um, which pushes out our lower, our lungs, especially our lower lungs, so that we can get a deeper, fuller breath. Yeah. And that's really important um, for anxiety specifically, because when we have shortness of breath, when we're hyperventilating, we want to be able to slow down our breath, control our breath. And then not only is it controlling our breath, but it's also teaching us that we have control over our anxiety, over our bodies, which a lot of people feel like they're out of control with their anxiety. So it's both a component of um, oxygen's good for our body, and it's also turning off our sympathetic nervous system and turning on our parasympathetic, but also this cognitive piece of recognizing I'm in more control than what I'm giving myself credit for. So, so if you're breathing and your shoulders are going up and down, you're probably doing it wrong, yes. right? So really, if you're putting your hand on your stomach, your stomach should be expanding considerably. Yeah. You know, I, I learned this technique uh, when I was quite young because I was a trumpet player. Mm, and so, yes. you know, if you're, if you're playing the trumpet or some other you know instrument where you have to breathe into it uh, and your shoulders and arms are moving quite a bit, right? It's going to be moving all over your mouth. And so you have to be using the stomach. And so, um, you know, you can practice this uh, very simply. Um, some people will actually lay on the ground on their back, right? They'll put their hand and they'll sort of watch the stomach go in and out. And as you, as you do that with some deep breaths, it, it, do you use a particular uh, in versus out you know, like inhale versus exhale pattern. There are so many ones that'll say, oh, you do five, 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 you do four, seven, eight. Now, different people will have different comfort levels when they begin. So I just tell people to slow it down as much as they can. Slowly mm. in through your nose, pinch it at the top. So hold it one or two seconds, then out through your mouth. And then as you get more comfortable with it, then you can uh, elongate it more and more and more. Yeah. And the more that, the more that you do that, the slower you go, right? As you said before, the more you're going to be stimulating the parasympathetic, which is, you know, we, we mentioned the sympathetic nervous system as being that fight or flight and the parasympathetic is, is the rest and digest, right? So when we engage the diaphragm, there's actually a nerve that is connected to the diaphragm, right? That goes back to the brain uh, and, and will engage that, that parasympathetic. Uh, so uh, any other, any other sort of physical things or behavioral things that you can do? Yeah, so I'll mention this one quickly, grounding. Grounding is really important because with your anxiety, you feel often you could have like depersonalization or derealization um, and have like this disconnect. And so you want to ground yourself to the present moment. Um, we have the five, four, three, two, one technique, five things that you see, four things that you hear, three things that you can touch, two things that you can smell, and one thing that you can taste. And so that's grounding you to the present instead of being kind of taken away by your anxiety. 
So grounding. Right. Now that, that five, four, three, two, one, you know, we all, we all sometimes mess up the, the exact order it goes in, but essentially, you know, engage your five senses and, and do so in a very intentional way, right? You're not just quickly looking, but you're trying to really almost like analyze and, and participate in whatever it is that you're fully experiencing. Cause anxiety just has that tendency to, to pull us away from everything that's going on around us. And we become so focused on exactly what we're feeling internally, but it's important to, as you said, ground ourselves in what is the external external environment and be more mindful of what's going on around us. Uh, so let's, let's walk through a couple more behavioral techniques. So exposure response prevention, it has that both component of the behavior of doing and then the cognitive of you're challenging your belief. So for example, um, with, let's talk, maybe give an example of something that someone's afraid of. Uh, so this uh, person can't cross a bridge. Okay, so person can't cross a bridge, right? The exposure piece, they're gonna want to avoid that bridge. But the more that they avoid that bridge, the more that they're confirming the belief that there's something dangerous about that bridge, right? I'm gonna die or um, it's going to collapse on it's, me. It's going to collapse, right? Yeah. Um, so the exposure piece is going on that bridge. And as I go on that bridge, it then um, addresses or it attacks the belief it's going to collapse. Because what happens when I go on it and it doesn't collapse? There's evidence. There's actual concrete evidence to show me I didn't die, right? Sure. Whether it's fear of pl- uh, flying or... It's driving or it's related to cleanliness. When you think about like OCD, it's challenging those beliefs, but in a behavior approach, which I really love because it's very tangible, right? Mm -hmm. It's not just, okay, I'm going to reframe in my mind alone. It's no, I'm having concrete evidence to show that my belief was not correct, not true. So is the cognitive aspect of it just sort of what comes naturally after you've um, done the exposure? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and I know we have one one other additional behavior technique to talk about. So yes, which one is that, Jonathan? Uh, the gradual. Well, I guess. Well, that's I, part of it. Yeah, the gradual exposure, which I guess is uh, as you uh, as you said before. Well, I, I'll have you explain that one. Yeah. So gradual exposure is, let's say, with the bridge, right? We might create a fear hierarchy, a ladder, and start with like at the bottom. What what's the least anxiety provoking situation or step that I can take. So is that looking at a picture of a bridge (laughs) Mm -hmm. because even that might induce anxiety. And so, okay, I'm gonna start there. And then what happens is I look at the picture, I realize I can tolerate that anxiety. And as I overcome that and I repeated exposure, then I might go to the next kind of rung on the ladder. A small bridge. A small bridge, right? Um, Perhaps a bridge that you have walked by many times and you're like, okay, it doesn't seem as daunting. And then bigger bridges until you can conquer finally and feel confident that you can overcome that, that anxiety. Uh, so let's talk about uh, some cognitive techniques. And I know that there's one uh, in particular that you wanted to emphasize, but cognitive restructuring. So let, why don't you give us a definition and an example of that? Yeah. So cognitive restructuring, um, because we're talking about a lot of different types of anxiety disorders, this one is really general enough to address any of them. Um, so cognitive restructuring, thinking about restructuring your cognition, restructuring your thoughts, looking at your thoughts, putting them on trial, I like to say, and giving it a fair trial. 
The reason why I say fair is because often we only listen to one side. We mm. think about all the negative. So um, if I'm worrying excessively about my finances, I'm thinking about all the the stressors. I'm thinking about all the bills. I'm thinking all about one side, but then I'm not thinking about the other side. Okay, well, I have these other funds set aside or I have um, the the deadlines for those bills are not yet here, right? It's maybe down, you know, a couple of months from now. And so you want to listen to both sides and then have a conclusion. So for example, with the trial analogy, then what would I say? Okay, after I hear both sides, what's the conclusion of the matter? What's the innocent or guilty for my thought? Okay, if it's untrue, I need to change it to be true. Oh, actually, I... I am stressed about my finances, but it's not the end of the world. Maybe I'm catastrophizing and saying, oh, my family, we're going to lose everything. No, it is stressful, right? And it's not positive thinking. It's whatever thought is true. Now, sometimes we may come to the conclusion that a thought is true, but it may not be helpful to dwell on and sure. ruminate. Um, so cognitive restructuring basically helps you put your thoughts on trial. And specifically, you could do a thought record, which um, I know in other episodes we've talked about, um, but basically the thought record helps you slow down your thoughts, put it down on paper and look at it objectively to find the truth. Okay. Excellent. I think that's a really good uh, place for a lot of people to get started. Yes. And uh, any other, any other closing thoughts that you have, Katie? I would just have to say that I really appreciate today's episode and just like normalizing anxiety, right? Anxiety is our friend. We want to listen to it. And then if it's been, there's been times where we recognize that smoke detector is off, we just need to recalibrate and we can recalibrate by these different uh, techniques that we've talked about. And of course, um, sometimes it's so difficult that we need extra support. And so it's by it being so normal, it's also normal to go seek treatment for it as well. So if you only take away one thing from today's show, remember this. If mental illness is a whole person problem, then it must have a whole person solution. I'm Dr. Katie Elson. I'm Jonathan Edens, and you've been listening to The, the Brain, Brain People, People Podcast. Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes, find us on social media or support us financially visit thebrainpeoplepodcast.com.